We would like you to take your Bibles at this time and turn along with us to Acts chapter 20 and verse 6. Acts chapter 20 and verse 6. This morning I would like to deliver a message, as Brother Baker stated, concerning the man who fell asleep in church. Now, I know none of you have ever had that problem, but there is a man by the name of Eutychus who did indeed fall asleep in church. And we want to understand more about the significance of that dispensationally as we come here to the Acts record. Of course, the book of Acts is a story book. It is telling us and presenting to us the fall and the casting away of Israel. That's the theme of the writing. But while that is the primary theme, there is also an underlying theme, which is the coming forth and the blossoming of the church, the body of Jesus Christ. And so the Acts record is transitional. We are transitioning away from God's prophetic program to his mystery program. Consequently, we begin with the kingdom gospel, which is enveloped in the law, and we transition to the gospel of the grace of God, which is enveloped in what we call the mystery. We begin with Peter proclaiming Christ as the Messiah of Israel. But as we move through the transition period, we are introduced to a new apostle, Paul, who is commissioned to the Gentiles. And so we end with his ministry. We begin with the nation Israel as the apple of God's eye and God giving her a second opportunity to trust Christ as her Messiah. But we end with Paul preaching Christ and him crucified to the Gentiles. So it is essential that you understand from the outset that the theme and the purpose of the book of Acts is the fall and casting away of Israel. But at the same time, we must also recognize that God is introducing for the first time in history the church, the body of Jesus Christ. Now, as we go through these passages, beginning at verse 6 to verse 12, we first want to show you the dispensational significance of this story. Then we're going to double back and we're going to show you this story in light of typology. Because I personally believe and have taught for many years that Eutychus is a type of the church, the body of Christ. And others have seen this as well. But we challenge you to be a Berean and study to see if these things are so.
Here in verse 6, Luke writes these words accounting the travels of the Apostle Paul. And we sailed. It shows that Luke was in Paul's company with the usage of that pronoun. And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came unto them to Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. Now, even though we are transitioning away from the law, you will notice that time is still being marked by the Holy Spirit in regard to feast days. And so while they're beginning to lose their spiritual significance in the kingdom program, the Holy Spirit is still using them that we might be able to comprehend where we're at in God's dealings and also what time of the year it is. And of course, as we know, the days of unleavened followed the days of the Passover. Subsequently, it was the springtime of the year that Paul was traveling. Also, I should pause here to say that Paul has completed his three apostolic journeys, and now he is making his way back to Jerusalem. You see, brethren, he never forgave himself for persecuting the church of God and laying it waste. He felt within himself that he could reach his countrymen for Christ. His heart's desire was that Israel might be saved. Even though the Lord on more than one occasion had told him, Go far hence unto the Gentiles, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. Nevertheless, Paul felt within himself that he could go back one more time and perhaps reach them with the gospel of grace. And so they sail from Philippi to Troas, and I called you, your attention to that that took five days, and when they finally arrived at Troas, notice that they abode there seven days. Now that's significant for this reason. You will note in verse 7 that it was upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread Paul preached unto them. So he was there for a period at Troas for seven days. But you must note that he did not preach until the first day of the week. He passed by the Sabbath day. Now, he was there on the Sabbath, but he did not preach on the Sabbath unto them. Rather, he chose to separate out the brethren on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, to proclaim the riches of God's grace unto them. So that shows to us we are very gradually transitioning away from the law of the Sabbath to the first day of the week, which is the day we worship on as a celebration of our Lord's resurrection. Now, they did not always worship on the first day of the week, because as we study prophecy, we learn Israel was given that Sabbath day. That was the seventh day of the week, or Saturday. 
Now let's go back and review that for a moment in Exodus chapter 31. Exodus chapter 31. And it is here that we learn that God gave the law to Moses and in particular the law of the Sabbath. Exodus 31 verse 15. Six days may work be done, but in the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whosoever doeth any work in the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. So whenever God gave the law to Moses, one of the components of that law was what was known as the law of the Sabbath. It was on Saturday that was set aside by God as a day of rest. They were not permitted to do any type of work on that day. They could only travel what was known as a tra uh, Sabbath day journey, which was about a mile and a half, and then they had to return. Even concerning the meals that were to be prepared, it had to be done days in advance because there was to be no work performed on the Sabbath. They couldn't even go out and gather sticks to kindle a fire without being under the penalty of death. So with that in mind, God gave the Sabbath to Israel. It was a day of rest, a day that they worshipped the Lord God Almighty. But as we begin to transition out away from the prophetic program and the law of God, and we are introduced to this new apostle, Paul, and we begin to learn about the new revelation that was committed unto him, we note that the law of the Sabbath is set aside, and we are introduced to a new day of rest and worship. It is the first day of the week. Now, I should add this, being that we are living under the administration of grace, technically speaking, we have liberty in Christ. We could worship any day of the week, but we follow the pattern of Paul, because as he came to visions and revelations in the Lord, the Lord apparently committed unto him that it was upon the first day of the week that they should gather. And indeed, Paul did gather the saints on that day, not only to take collections for the poor saints in Jerusalem, but also to worship and to preach the gospel of the grace of God. So here, as we look in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, it was upon the first day of the week that he gathers the disciples together. Now here, brethren, we must be very careful. Sunday is not the Lord's day. Let me say that one more time. Sunday is not the Lord's day. That's taken from Revelation chapter 1, when John the apostle was caught in the spirit on the Lord's day to see that future time of the tribulation. Well, in the Greek, that can be translated Lord's day or day of the Lord. 
In the Hebrew, you can't do that, but in the Greek, you can. And so the Lord's day refers to the future day of the Lord and judgment of God. It has absolutely nothing to do with Sunday or the first day of the week. And notice as Paul gathers the brethren together, that as they came together, they did so to break bread. And there's been a great discussion and debate over this through the years as to whether they were merely observing the Lord's Supper or whether they were simply sitting down to have a meal together. Well, it is possible, of course, that they did observe the Lord's Supper, but I think in the context here, they simply sat down to have a meal together and to fellowship and to share with one another what the Lord was doing there at Troas. Now, I base that conclusion on verse 11. And when he therefore was come up again and had broken bread and eaten. So a little later on in the record here, we see that there was another occasion where they gathered and they broke bread. Now, we would not assume from that that they again observed the Lord's Supper, but rather they were simply having a meal together. And Paul, as it goes on in verse 7, since he was ready to part on the morrow, he continued his speech until midnight. And there were many lights in the upper chamber where they gathered together. And there sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus, being fallen into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. So here, as we follow the narrative, we see that Paul stood up and he began to preach Christ. And he did so until after midnight. Apparently, he had been proclaiming the counsel of God for some five or six hours. And there was a young man who had gathered with them who was sitting there in the window. Now, we've been a little hard on Eutychus sometimes for falling asleep, but apparently he was very involved in the Lord's work. Perhaps he even helped organize some of these meetings, and it was after the meal. And Paul preached on and on and on, and he became drowsy, and he fell asleep and fell out of the window to his death. Now, this portion shows to me that the saints loved the word of God. To sit under the ministry of the Apostle Paul that long, and they were attentive, listening as he proclaimed all concerning Christ had accomplished unto them. And I have to say, brethren, when we come to the church today, it's a very sad commentary when we look at our services and even as we go across section uh, around the country that so many have difficulty making it even out to the morning worship service, let alone the evening service and the midweek services. That ought 
not to be. And when some of the saints come among us, they're complaining the whole time that the pastor went 35 minutes this morning. Heaven forbid. Brethren, we're members of the body of Christ. This is the living word of God. We should be willing to sit for hours like these saints before us to hear the proclamation of this blessed book. But people won't put up with very much today. Oh, down in Chicago, send them to a Bears game. And I don't know whether you've ever been to Soldier Field in Chicago, but it sits right on the lake. And some of those winter months when the bears are playing there and that wind is howling off of that lake. And here's 60,000 people for three hours sitting on a cold, hard bench below zero temperatures sometimes, and they're cheering. But yet, they won't sit and hear the word of the Lord for an hour without complaining. Something's wrong, brethren. So Paul preached, and the young man fell from the third loft. And then in verse 10, And Paul went down and fell on him, and embracing him said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. When he therefore was come up again, and had broken bread, and eaten, and talked a long while, even till the break of day, so he departed, and they brought the young man alive, and were not a little comforted. So it shows to us in this stage of Paul's ministry, he was still performing signs and miracles and wonders. And that has confused many as to why Paul had these gifts and why some of the members of the body of Christ had these gifts at that time. Well, first of all, it was necessary for Paul to exercise them because that was the seal of his apostleship. To be called an apostle back at that time, they had to have seen the Lord face to face and also have all of the signs of the apostles, one of which was the ability to heal and raise the dead. Also, we see that God permitted these gifts to come over to the church, the body of Christ, to give the church a foothold. They were assigned to Israel that God was doing something new and different among the Gentiles. You'll remember they were the sign people of God. They required a sign. God spoke to them in signs and wonders. And now through Paul's ministry and these miracles that he was performing, it was a sign to Israel that he was setting them aside in unbelief and raising up a new apostle and commissioning him to go forth to the Gentiles. And so these miracles help to substantiate Paul's ministry. And he heals this young man, and they bring him forth alive. And they were not a little comforted. They could see that the hand of God and the blessing of God was upon Paul and his ministry. Indeed, he is the apostle of the Gentiles. 
But now we want to come back a moment as we drift back to verse 7, because I think that the story of Eutychus is also rich in typology. The book of Acts, before the Pauline epistles, is the last book of types. Now, a type is a divine illustration of some truth. It's a story, or it's a picture of what is to come. And I think what we have here invested in Eutychus is a picture of the church, the body of Christ, and a brief history of this dispensation. Now again, we challenge you to be a Berean. But not only have I believed this and taught this for years, but many others have as well, and I think you'll see it as we move through here. Notice how there in verse 8 there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. I think that's referring to Paul's gospel and the light that is being shined into this world. That God has opened the doors of his grace and he's lavishing the world with the riches of his grace. He's long-suffering usward, not willing that any should perish but that all should have an opportunity to come to know Christ. You are the sinner for whom Christ died. That's the message we proclaim today unto you. That's the message Paul proclaimed. And notice how it is Paul who is preaching, because he is the apostle of the Gentiles. He was to them back at this time in this record, and he is our apostle down to this very hour. And if you want to be in the center of God's will, then you must acknowledge the apostleship and message of Paul. It's as simple as that. And in verse 9, and there sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus, being fallen into a deep sleep. Eutychus means fortunate. And indeed, he was given that proper name to show forth that even though this tragedy came into his life, God had mercy upon him. And he indeed was fortunate. Now, back in biblical times, names had meanings attached to them. They had significance, and that certainly is the case here. And notice that as Paul was long preaching, showing that we're living in the dispensation of grace, and that it would far outspan the law. The law was for 1,500 years. Grace now has gone nearly 2,000, and it may go another 1,000 yet. So that's referring to the extent of the dispensation. And Eutychus sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. Now the third loft, if you look, you have first heaven, second heaven, third heaven. Now, whenever we look at the scriptures, 
the center of God's plans and purposes. Indeed, the center of his universe is the earth, and everything is in relation to that. Now, you might say, well, in astronomy, Pastor, don't you know that the sun is the center of our solar system? Yes, that's true. But the Bible teaches that the earth is the center of the plans and purposes of God. And so the first heaven is in relation to the earth, the second heaven is in relation to the earth, and the third heaven, or what we call the heavenlies, is in relation to the earth and encompass the earth. And so as we look here at the third law, the members of the body of Christ have been given that heavenly position and were blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. But notice that Eutychus, representative of the body of Christ, fell. Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. Eutychus was given a second chance. And this is what I present unto you this day. That in Paul's ministry, as he went forth and proclaimed the riches of God's grace, it was received. Many trusted Christ. And there were churches established throughout Asia and Europe and the known world of that day. And the body of Christ began to grow. But as Paul went on in his ministry, there are many who began to question his apostleship and message. And many began to withdraw from him and didn't want anything to do with him because of the then present distress. Consequently, near the end of his ministry, he was heartbroken that all Asia had departed from him. Churches like Ephesus had turned on him. And because the church back at that time began to reject Paul's apostleship and message, the judgment of God fell upon the world and the church in the sense that we went into the Dark Ages and then into the Middle Ages. And you search church history, and there is little written during that period of time about the great revivals or if there were any revivals, apparently there weren't. Or where they acknowledged Paul's apostleship. Or where the church, the body of Christ, made inroads and had an impact back through those centuries. There's almost a deafening silence. Just like the church wasn't even there. Like it was dead. But then in the Reformation, there was a glimmer. A man by the name of Luther posted his 95 thesis on a door. And he began to see from the scriptures, in particular, from the book of Romans. Paul wrote Romans, the just shall live by faith. And that sparked the Reformation. And little by little, as Luther preached, as Zwingli teached, taught, as Calvin taught, and the other great reformers, Wycliffe and others, 
as they proclaimed God's word in the power of the Spirit once again. Very gradually, we began to recover Pauline truth. Then came J.N. Darby, and he began to see the truth of the pre-tribulational rapture. He was followed by C.I. Schofield, who began to see the dispensations in the word of God. He was followed by Pastor J.C. O'Hare, who gave us the great truth of the two programs of God, prophecy and mystery. And he was followed by Pastor Stam, who started to pull it all together. And so, brethren, we are standing upon the shoulders of great men, great men of the faith, who have recovered this Pauline truth for us. The body of Christ has been given a second chance. And in verse 11, when he therefore was come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even to the break of day, so he departed. And so today we have the privilege of the recovery of the Pauline revelation. And what are we doing about it? Are we standing for this truth? Are we going out and day and night like Paul did telling others about the meritorious work of Christ? Are we telling those who are of the household of faith that they have to acknowledge Paul's apostleship and message? That they have to rightly divide the word of truth? Why, this is the message that has been committed unto us and that we are responsible to proclaim faithfully. Because I do not believe there is going to be another chance. This is it, brethren. I think we're drawing near the end. And notice Paul was about ready to depart here on the morrow. I think we're near the end of the road. And it wouldn't surprise me a bit, some of us who are a little younger in this room, if we won't someday hear the trump and be ushered off the glory. Never before in the history of the world have world events aligned themselves so closely to the book of Revelation. And we know that prophecy cannot begin and cannot be fulfilled until, like Paul, there's a departure here, and we're caught off to glory. And we want to challenge you today. What are you doing for the revelation of the mystery? How involved are you in the preservation of this program? How involved are you in proclaiming the riches of God's grace? How faithful are you to your local assembly? Brethren, there's so few of us. We should be standing shoulder to shoulder, fighting that good fight of the faith and making this blessed message known. The hour is growing late, and soon the trump is going to sound. You won't have another opportunity to serve the Lord like you have right now, today. And go forth and tell others about Christ.
Paul says, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, today. And the reason Paul says it in that manner is because that sinner out there may not have tomorrow. I think of that tragic school bus accident in northern Illinois. Seven young people lost their lives in a moment of time. It was like any other morning. They got up early. They dressed, brushed their teeth, had breakfast. What they didn't realize was that before they got to that high school, they'd be in eternity. What about that neighbor that you live beside? What about that unsaved brother or sister? Have you taken the gospel to them? Don't wait. Don't wait. Tomorrow may be too late. Let's close in prayer. Father, as we have broken the bread of life once again, we pray that we may take this great dispensational lesson, that we might examine it under the magnifying glass of thy word, that we might study to see if these things are so. And we pray at this moment for each and every one in this room, rekindle the fire, rekindle the fire within us to go forth with the good news that Christ died for the sins of the world. Rekindle that zeal like Paul had to proclaim the riches of thy grace. And more importantly, to stand uncompromisingly for the unadulterated gospel of the grace of God. May we do this not in our own strength, but in the power of the Spirit, and may it be to thy honor and to thy glory. For it's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.